Welcome to this week's uh, edition of 21 Wired Live. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. Thank you very much uh, for joining us on this live stream. Uh, we've got an amazing show lined up for you today. Uh, we've got a great guest uh, waiting in the wings. But before we do that, we just want to announce that we're streaming out live on YouTube, uh, Periscope, and also at Facebook as well. And you can also, of course, watch the stream up at 21 Wire Live, uh, up at 21firstcenturywire.com. Uh, uh, but uh, right now, I want to uh, introduce our guest. Uh, his name is uh, Gary McKinnon, and uh, he's no stranger uh, to uh, the Julian Assange case. Uh, obviously, he's got a lot of interesting things to share with us uh, this week. Let's just look at a reaction uh, from Monday's decision uh, of the, uh, the the hearing or the extradition hearing for Julian Assange. This was at the Old Bailey uh, in the city of London uh, when it was announced uh, that the judge is going to block U.S. extradition on the grounds that uh, Julian Assange might be a suicide risk if rendered into U.S. Uh, custody. Uh, here's the reaction uh, right here. The defense is asking for Judge Barretta for her to grant Assange bail. She's really wondering if she can manage to submit an application to that. So that was the reaction outside the old Bailey. Uh, obviously, people were really, really happy, really excited. Uh, and then it was t we were told that uh, two days later there'd be a bail hearing on Wednesday. And of course, that was th that would be the uh, the really important part to see uh, Julian Assange. Uh, released uh, on bail to be with his family, uh, to be with his friends and his cohort. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen. Uh, this morning, uh, we found out that uh, Julian Assange's bail was denied by Judge uh, Vanessa Baretzer. This was at the Westminster Magistrates Court in London. And uh, the reason given was that he was uh, allegedly a flight risk so uh, we, there's a lot to, to unpack here, a lot to talk about. Uh, so we're going to welcome our guest. Uh, his name is Gary McKinnon, and he's joining us uh, on the live link right now. And uh, Gary, thank you very much for joining us this week. My pleasure, Patrick. Uh, thank you for having me. No, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, now, first of all, you know, uh, a lot of people were excited, uh, Gary, uh, obviously, uh, by what happened on Monday. Uh, now, uh, what happened today is a, obviously a massive disappointment, and it brings up so many different issues. Um, but, you know, first of all, uh, give us your thoughts on on how the uh, Julian Assange hearing has has played out this week. You know, what we, what are your, some of your you know, initial thoughts and maybe some of your concerns as well as to how things have uh, unfolded? Well, um, <clears throat> that was a lovely scene there, the people responding to the, the good news. And it reminded me hugely of uh, when my family and I found out that I wouldn't be extradited. And um, it's a great victory, obviously, for Julian, his family, his friends, his supporters that have been supporting him for years. But um, all the way through this case, the judge has seemed to side with the prosecution. Um, she hasn't been neutral, which obviously a judge should be. It's a judge's job to weigh the evidence. Um, for instance, with the mental health. Uh, she's listened to experts for the prosecution, she's listened to experts for the defence, and she's agreeing with the prosecution. 
which is just it's just ridiculous. And also, someone's obviously going to be in a very bad mental place. I can 100% vouch for that. Um, when you've been under such a great threat for so long, it really does crack you psychologically. Um, so I can identify with that as well. But anyway, it was a victory, and it's brilliant. And uh, everyone thought, well, surely he can be released now because he's committed no crime. And the extradition has been barred, so he should be let go. And we find out today that he's, he doesn't have bail. Um, he's going to stay in prison. Well, I guess his um, status will change on demand. I'm not sure if it was classes on demand before. And um, it, now the Americans can kind of torture him for even longer. They can, you know, take whatever time they like before they make the decision about the appeal, whether they're going forward with that. So he could be in there for months more. And it's just, it's ridiculous. It's wrong. Yes. The, and this is the thing that uh, that I, I, I found was interesting, you know, obviously listening to some of the rationale coming out of the court, uh, the comments by the judge uh, with regards to him, you know, being a flight risk, et cetera. Uh, the defense made a, uh, other arguments, you know, in terms of the, the treatment at Belmarsh prison. Uh, the fact that, uh, you know, a visitation, as far as I'm, as far as I'm aware, has been suspended because of COVID or because of the, the quote, pandemic. Uh, and so, you know, he won't be able to see his family so for an indefinite period of time, we don't know, as you said, Gary, how long the appeals uh, process is going to be. Certainly the United States is, is planning to appeal. Uh, the only thing that could change the course of this radically would be if by some miracle Donald Trump pardoned uh, Julian Assange, uh, and that would sort of end the matter uh, at this point. Uh, but I, I just, I don't see that that happening. But, uh, you know, so, you know, what, what do you think... Th- it was brought up about his mental state, about his physical state. In, in fact, they denied extradition on that basis, and yet they're, at the same time they're throwing him back into that situation uh, just a few days later, deciding, no, we we're not going to bail you. Uh, and so effectively, you know, he's being treated like a terrorist, you, you could say. But mind you, Gary, I don't know if you had seen reports of some of the people who have been let out on bail with ankle tags, uh, listed terrorists, you know, bombers and people with terrorist connections actually being treated better than Julian Assange in, in this case. What, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, it's, um, it certainly tells us what they class as the, the superior threat, doesn't it? And uh, apparently truth is the superior threat, not um, you know, a bomb manufacturer or whatever. And you're absolutely right. The, the prison yeah, doesn't allow visits due to COVID. Um, so he's going to be back on his own again for months. And, um, yeah, physical damage as well, because uh, when, when you're psychologically damaged and you're depressed, you do stop looking after yourself as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find it very hard to sleep. And uh, this, all, this all adds up and takes its toll eventually. So um, he really should be out. I mean, like you said about the, um, the mental health evidence, that was the reason he was barred from extradition. And yet, at the same time, the judge is saying that she doesn't believe that his mental health suffered that much. I mean, what kind of strange hypocrisy is that? I don't understand. It's that. very contradictory, uh, actually. I mean, yeah. maybe you can give us some details. Uh, you know, in the case of, of Lori Love, uh, in, in a somewhat similar case uh, with regards to U.S. extradition, uh, computer intrusion, etc. Obviously, your case uh, was also, you know, a very high-profile case but you had you you and Laurie and Julian had some of the same issues come into play, you know that, that had to do with your 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 health, your physical and your mental health. 
and also Julian Assange is, is diagnosed with uh, uh, Asperger's uh, or something similar. This uh, also came out in the hearing uh, on Monday, and he's you know so it really on the opinion of the medical advice, uh, and the judge recognized that as you said. Um, but uh, you know what 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 uh, what insights can you kind of offer on that? I mean, you're probably familiar with Laurie's case uh, as well. Uh, and you know how the difference in in how the court's treating this case as opposed to yours and and maybe Laurie Love's. Yeah, well, I think um, I mean Laurie Love and I just got unauthorized access to computer systems, um, whereas Julian has got state secrets, basically, or what were state secrets. So he's obviously a, a far more dangerous threat to them than uh, either I or or Laurie were. Um, Laurie's case didn't go on for so long. Um, I, I was actually chatting with him when it all first started, and then obviously things got too stressful for him, and he stopped being so communicative. So um, I didn't really get much of an insight as, as to you know, privately how it was for him as it was going along. But um, I think he was diagnosed with Asperger's as well. And um, I was seen by five of the, the top professionals in the land um, with the, the Asperger's diagnosis. And uh, they said that I had a hyperinflated sense of truth and justice. And uh, I really don't know how you can have, you know, too much of a sense of truth and justice because it's pretty, pretty black and white to me. But I can definitely see that in Laurie and definitely see that in Julian as well. Um, and I know that, I mean, I, I actually prepared for suicide when I was going through it. I bought some um, potassium chloride, which is the second chemical they use in the, the lethal injection triplet in America. And uh, I don't, you know, enough to go with my body weight. And all I had to do was I'd drink a cup of liters of water with powder in it. And uh, that's how serious it can make you feel. So um, I can certainly have an insight on their, um, their mental state, if not, you know, lots of the details of the case. Yeah, I, I, and I don't, I don't think, uh, you know, it seems to me like uh, the, the prosecution are really kind of almost, uh, you know, deriding that side of things uh, by the defense. It's almost like they don't take it seriously uh, in, the, in the case of Julian. And, you know, when you combine that together with the fact that he's unconvicted, he's been in Belmarsh now for over 18 months, and he's unconvicted. So effectively, you've got somebody who is in a maximum security uh, facility who's on remand indefinitely, effectively indefinitely. I mean, it's difficult to say when there will be closure on this for him. Uh, so, you know, that's, I mean, it, it really comes down to, you know, how, how strong his constitution is, how strong his support network is. Uh, but, you know, if you're being denied contact or visitation um, in the current, you know, pandemic climate, uh, I would see this, this is going to get a lot harder. Um, it'd be very tough for, for Julian. Do you, do you think this is a case of, you know, the, uh, the powers that be are keen to uh, break his, his will uh, rather than make any legitimate point in terms of their argument on national security because that's been you know very well debunked by some of the top journalists in the world by daniel ellsberg by many of the most the fame, most famous whistleblowers uh in western civilization have pretty much debunked the prosecution's case on on its technical merits and so forth 
So is this is this really about making an example of of Julian Assange rather than proving that he committed this crime or that? What what are your thoughts on that side? I think so. Yeah, um, definitely because um, he is in a limbo now. You know, I, I, is is there even a proper legal term for it? He should not be on remand in prison because he's just had his extradition barred. So he's committed no crime. You know, what the hell is he doing? Being taken back to prison? It's just. Um, I think it's actually illegal. Obviously, I'm not a lawyer, but to me, it seems illegal because it's just completely the wrong situation. Um, and yeah, this will take a, a bigger toll on him. As you say, he can't have any visits. Um, so he won't be talking to his family or you know, see his children um, and his parents. It's um, definitely an isolation technique, I think, as well. And uh, the powers that be do work in very strange ways we realized after a few hearings, because I had lots and lots of hearings over the 11 years, um, that they always put the hearings on dates that were important to our family, like uh, my mum's birthday or my dad's birthday or various things like that. At first we thought, no, it's just silly, but it happened like four or five times. Um, it might sound conspiratorial, but you know, that's me. But um, I think they definitely do like to squeeze you. And especially the American authorities, they said, um, if I didn't go over there of my own free will, they would prosecute me to the max, um, deny my family visits in jail, and also deny any access to the press. In fact, they even threatened me to uh, be prosecuted under military order number one. And even Guantanamo was brought up. So um, you're right, they're putting the pressure on and they want to break him, absolutely. Now, uh, we're going to take a look at uh, some footage. Um, this is quite iconic footage. Uh, again, for the, the previous footage outside of Neil Bailey with the reaction on Monday and, and this as well, uh, we'll, we'll give a big shout out to Drew at Let Me Look TV who supplied us uh, with this, uh, this footage here. This is the sort of iconic scene of the van coming in. Uh, I believe this is this morning at Westminster Magistrates Court. I'm not sure, but or if this was from Monday, but you can see here... So, you know, what's interesting about that, uh, Gary, is, yeah, there's there's quite a bit of press, but the majority of the press that we, we've we seen at these hearings, a lot of them are foreign press, a lot of the international press, not a lot in terms of the British press. It's almost like this story is kind of an afterthought or maybe a nuisance, you could say, uh, to the mainstream uh, British press. Uh, and, you know, I'm of the belief, Gary, that we, we might not be in this position right now, uh, the regrettable position that the that this case is in, that this story is in, uh, if the mainstream press had not come out immediately uh, to defend uh, Julian Assange on the basis of of his true uh, his true classification, which is would be that of a journalist, WikiLeaks, that of of a publisher, obviously not your normal publisher, but technology has changed the game, and WikiLeaks was one of the first. You know, unique media outlets to basically run with the technology to revolutionize this type of journalism. Uh, so, you know, in, in a sense, is it? It could be possible that the uh, the, the establishment press, uh, the old fourth estate, um, they don't like WikiLeaks. 
uh, even though WikiLeaks has done great things for them in terms of providing them doing the heavy lifting for a lot of their biggest stories over the last, you know, 12 years or 15 years. But, um, you know, why do you think this is there's such a muted reaction in the UK compared to some of the international uh, media environments? Well, as you say, they are the establishment press, so they do tell the line. I was thinking this yesterday. Um, he's given them so much with all his releases, and they they picked over them, picked over them, and released them. Um, you know, over months and months and months, well, years. They got so much, um, well, so many stories, so much information, you know, and sold lots and lots of papers. And now, when it comes to him, and when he could greatly do with media help, they practically ignore him. You know, they, they hardly touch this story. Um, but it is no surprise because they are the establishment press. And so they, they follow the establishment message. And uh, the British state is a lot of the time under the heel of, of the American government. Um, and I think, um, I know there's a lot of pressure, obviously, in my case. And he, he must be getting the same kind of pressure, or rather the British authorities must be getting the same kind of pressure to um, play it quiet in the media and to um, expedite his case and get him over there. Sure, sure. I mean, from, you know, from your, your personal experience uh, on, on that situation, um, how, how did the, uh, you know, you had a lot of pressure from the media, probably, you know, wanting to talk to you or any member of your family. Uh, and this is sort of over a long period of time, you know, just to tell us about that. I mean, I can imagine it was very stressful uh, for you and then, you know, how does this change over time? Does it get easier? Do you learn to cope with that? Or does it just become even even heavier over time? Um, yeah, you definitely learn to cope with it. Um, I did a lot of interviews up until about 2008 when I got too depressed. And uh, my mum, who was actually chronically shy, she took over and uh, did an amazing job. Um, it, is, it is a pressure, but obviously you want the um, publicity because you want to highlight uh, the situation you're in but um yeah over time you, you do get used to it but it's uh it's a strange thing because you're you're going through something so bloody awful and yet you have to you know speak on television about it you have to speak in newspapers about it but luckily for me the the press here seemed to take the view i was like a a kind of harmless ufo nut <laughs> a bit of an eccentric and uh, I know that I didn't do damage, and it's you know since been um, released that there was no damage according to the Crown Prosecution Service. They couldn't get anything from the American authorities saying that. And uh, that's but the main thing in this is also the um, extradition treaty itself. It's just ridiculously imbalanced. The Americans are protected by the Constitution, um, but the British, all the Americans have to do is say, "Yep, he did this, and we want him," and that's it. You're gone. But luckily, that didn't happen to Julian. And didn't have to myself. So, so basically, obviously, you learned a lot about extradition law uh, through your through your experience, through your case. Uh, and so, just to sum, you know, to sum that up, uh, the U.S. can grab, theoretically, grab anybody they want for any reason uh, in, in this country. Well, in any country, really, that's what this precedent will probably show. Um, but that's not reciprocal, basically. And I know the British have. Uh, tried and, and failed uh, on a few occasions uh, to have the, uh, the that agreement go their way, uh, and it didn't. Um, so you know, 
what what uh what did did you did you feel that you had some of those legal avenues early on and then realized you know as as things progressed you realized that uh you know they're not playing fair <laughs> there's there's no you know the, the, in in effect is that 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 feeling that you would have had if you realized that even the law might not protect you that you're dealing with pure power of state um you know walk us through you know some of your thoughts on that exactly yeah very well put um it was frightening because you, you do realize that you are on this very sort of narrow legal channel and of course i was arrested in um 2002 and they didn't bring the treaty in until 2005 and the treaty wasn't actually ratified fully until 2006 but um, we were privy to a draft copy of the treaty and of course it was in u.s english it was in united states spelling which was kind of telling and um you could tell that my case had featured heavily in their thoughts when they were making the laws because of um certain wording and certain clauses and stuff but what we did get the only good result of uh, me and the NatWest 3 and other people that, that were undergoing extradition in the, when I was, was the, the forum bar, uh, which is meant to stop you being extradited if it can be shown that the majority of your alleged activities uh, took place in Britain rather than the, the destination country. But um, I think I'm writing saying that's only been used three times, I think, since it was brought in. And so it's, it's not a major change to it at all. You know, there's no sort of caveat for like a political, politically motivated charges or anything like that. So it's a, it's a very small improvement, but it's hardly been used at all. Yeah, one of the things that uh, when, when I was covering this case, uh, I was at Woolwich Crown Court uh, last February uh, and I was covering this case. And it, 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 the, the, the technical argument on the extradition uh, legislation on the, the law, uh, it, it, you know, it looks like prima facie, black and white, but when you start getting into the, the weeds, as it were, legally, uh, you realize that uh, there, there is some room to maneuver, uh, depending on how you interpret uh, the, the wording, as you said, the language as well. And uh, the, the prosecution that was representing the U.S. Department of Justice effectively um, they had this kind of stonewall approach, uh, this kind of um, their argument insisted that uh, absolutely nothing the defense has submitted, including any protections of international treaties um, regarding extradition, regarding human rights, things that the, the British government have signed up to 100 uh, percent, including the, the European charters as well. Uh, none of that is even remotely relevant uh, in the face of the immovable uh, British statutes uh, and the very narrow remit of of the Crown Court in that case. And so basically, you know, as far as they're concerned, uh, it cannot happen under the 2003 Extradition Act, uh, which was, well, it was stripped of the provision which bars extradition from Britain for any political offense. Um, so there's, there's a lot in the fine print on this. Uh, and, and right around that time, your case is really fascinating because you, what was happening to you is right, right around that transition. So the, the law was changed slightly, but has massive ramifications. And it leaves it really open to uh, the whims of 
you could say the judge in that case. It's not black and white, uh, is is what I'm saying. Is 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 that what you were kind of looking at as well, Gary? Yeah, I mean, uh, and you do realize that you know all the great powers are kind of joined up, and uh, they wanted to make things much much easier for the state, but much more difficult for the man or woman who's fighting them. Um, another example is uh, legal aid. We used to have really good legal aid provision in this country. And for my, the entire 11 years of my case, I was on legal aid. And um, that's now completely changed. You could not be in my situation again and get legal aid and be able to fight a proper case. So you'd basically be on the hook for, uh, I mean, Julian Assange is, is fortunate in that he has a, a, a sizable grassroots support base. WikiLeaks has a fundraising mechanism. So, you know, they're they're able to to fund, uh, uh, you know, a robust defense over a long period of time, although it's still expensive for them. I'm sure they don't have a bottomless pit of money, um, not like the state has. Uh, but so you're saying if if that happened to you now, what, what would your options be um, if if you're in that position? If that happened to me now, um, I wouldn't be able to afford any legal defense. And, um, you know, you might find someone kind enough to take it up pro bono, but who knows? It's um, it's a terrible situation, really. But this is, I think this is where we are with all the, the, the globalists and the bankers. It's, all the states are joining up and uh, making things very watertight for them, whereas us poor citizens are just getting less and less privacy, uh, more and more legislation that's confining us. Obviously, COVID has gone way beyond all of that. But um, I think this is it's indicative of, of how the states are deciding to do it. It's uh, the way forward, I think. Yeah, I, I have to uh, to say I sat through uh, a week, uh, a week of, of the hearings in at Willage Crown Court, and um, I was absolutely impressed blown away in fact by the performance of of the defense uh particularly edward fitzgerald and mark summers uh qc um, they did a masterful job in how they structured their defense and you know they did their homework they embarrassed the prosecution on more than one occasion uh on the floor it was it was it was cringeworthy how better prepared they were in terms of their historical legal arguments precedent law etc and the U.S. kind of, with the U.S. team, uh, the team the U.S. hired, if you will, uh, mostly British, but they, you know, they didn't seem like they didn't have much to prove. And I, I suppose you don't when you're sitting in the catbird seat, uh, the prosecution seat like that. Um, but it really goes to show, Gary, how the the scales of justice are not necessarily balanced at all when you're in that position, uh, when you're having to defend yourself. Uh, against it, it doesn't matter how ludicrous the charges are you still have to somehow overcome uh, what seems like an insurmountable uh, obstacle there uh, you know is uh, I don't know how long in total your your case took but you know this this one Julian's case this could easily drag into 2022 uh, possibly in some in, in somehow with regards to appeals and decisions and stuff like this but um but yeah i mean uh so you know it what are your what are your thoughts on the uh, the the longevity of this case do you think this will be wrapped this could be wrapped up 
soon uh, with with the U.S. appeal, or do you think it's within the interest of of the U.S. or Britain to to drag it out longer uh, in order to either save face or to keep Julian on ice longer to you know po- possibly put him at risk? Um, what are your thoughts on on the the, the time span right now? Yeah. Um, well, firstly, I'd like to quickly say um, Fitzgerald was my QC as well, and he, yeah, he's absolutely excellent, and he did decimate the opposition in court. Um, I was really surprised at how unprepared the U.S. prosecution was, but uh, I do often think that evil seems to go hand in hand with stupid. Sometimes they just seem to be very short-sighted and uh, not well prepared. Um, oh, sorry, what was the question? I was just talking about the the longevity of. Uh... Oh, yeah. of the case you know what do you think yeah. th- this could end uh soon or do you think it's it's in their interest to drag it longer well there do seem to be rumors that um the the appetite for an appeal has is being lost um i've not seen anything concrete about that um so if they i, I, I don't think there's a time limit on when they have to have the appeal but i do think um i don't know if they've set a date yet but i do think there's a time limit on, on setting a date um, so we should have a date for that pretty soon, I think. But um, it's a really hard one to call because we know they absolutely can't stand him. He's such a, a big threat to them because he, he tells the truth. And he tells the truth about that horrible dark world of arms sales and war and um, you know bent finances, bent international finances going on. Um, so I think they will want to keep him stewing for as long as possible. And yeah, it could go for another year. Um, they could launch another appeal if the first one fails. Um, I, I think you could have more than one appeal because we had more than one appeal for our defence. We had um, oh hearing after hearing after hearing, and um, it, it does really wear on you. But when when it's the only thing you can do, you, you have to keep going. I really don't hope it goes on for a year, but um, it certainly could. Well, we 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 hope it. Uh, we hope he gets a positive decision soon. I mean, I'm, I, as a journalist, people say, "Well, how you know you're not." Sometimes a lot of journalists were accused, including uh, including Let Me Look TV, who provide us with this footage, were accused by the police outside of the court of being activists and not journalists because he had a Assange button on his lapel, uh, and so they wanted to turf them out, confiscate their cameras. This was all caught on. On, on, on camera, of course. Uh, we played some of this on the UK Column News uh, on Monday, I think, um, and, and this morning. But uh, so, you know, I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not really objective in the sense that, uh, you know, th- to me, this is like the fourth estate. This is the free press on trial. So, you know, as a journalist and all of my journalist colleagues and all of the publications that I work with and that I read and that I consume, uh, I look at this case as, uh, really an attack or an affront on the whole concept of the fourth estate. Mm. Uh, so obviously we have, we have skin in the game. Uh, some of us do anyway. Uh, not everybody does. I'm, the times doesn't look like it does the Murdoch times doesn't look like it has any skin in this game. Uh, neither does the BBC, uh, and neither does well for the most part, the guardian and so many others. Mm. Um, but I mean, it, this is another issue, Gary. Uh, you know, do, these journalists do not, you know, editors and journalists. The majority of them, I really don't think that they, um, 
they recognize or they view uh, Julian Assange, WikiLeaks as as in the same profession as that as they are, and and that it seems like they're being treated kind of as an external uh, issue. That's like you know they're hackers basically. They've <laughs> almost been smeared or labeled uh, with this, and the mainstream press seems pretty pretty uh, comfortable uh, maintaining that label. Um, you know, what, what are your, what are your thoughts on, you, you follow the, you know, a lot about the British press, obviously you've had your experiences with them. Um, you know, what are your general feelings on that issue? Well, um, they're obviously, they're not stupid. So they, they know that what he did was basically journalism. I know, you know, it's, he had, uh, some of the best sources in the world, I suppose, but yeah, it was, it was basically journalism, but, um, they're just, they're cowards ultimately aren't they they're absolute cowards um they've got their safe job following the government message you know pleasing the state um retracting whenever the state wants retractions and attacking whenever the, the state wants attacks um so that's how i see it yeah they're moral cowards and um they should be defending julian because as you say that's journalism and that's what you you and your colleagues do and that's supposedly what um the major broadsheets and the tabloids in this country should be doing but um they're not well look, we're going to look at uh, we just got some footage uh from from drew at let me look um who's just sent this over to us this is uh, uh wikileaks editor uh christian harferson outside of uh, i believe westminster magistrates court at the bail hearing this morning um but let's uh let's take let's take a quick look at at that right now uh we'll roll that footage one second With disappointment to get this decision now from uh, the operator not to release Julian Assange on bail. We think it's unjust and unfair and illogical as such. When you consider her ruling two days ago about Julian's health, which of course is caused in large part because he is being held in Belmas prison, to send him back there doesn't make any sense any perspective it's inhumane and it's illogical this is a huge disappointment julian should not be in Belmar's prison in the first place i urge the department of justice to drop the charges and the president of the united states to pardon julian So that that was uh, his partner uh, after Christian Harferson. That that was his partner Stella Morris, uh, also the, the the mother of his the children as well. Um, and so the 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 basic justification for refusing bail uh, this morning was that Julian Assange was a flight risk, uh, and that because he, according to the judge, absconded uh, from bail uh, previously. Uh, then all of a sudden, you know, he becomes a major flight risk. She said he has the support network uh, to organize an escape or something like this. And based on what he did before. But, you know, the problem with this argument, Gary, uh, that the judge is making uh, in this is that he didn't abscond. 
from bail. Uh, he exercised his right under international law, under international treaties and human rights conventions of political asylum. It's absolutely cut and dried legal. And then here you have the, the legal establishment, the state, trying to basically, con, you know, using an incredible gymnastics move uh, to try to, you know, work around uh, the international treaties that they themselves are a party to. So, I mean, that's a central issue. Um, from the beginning, they've been able to keep Julian on the hook on a very, very spurious bail charge to begin with that was based on a Swedish sex crime case that has been dropped three times and is now dead and buried, never coming back. And to find out that the whole thing was contrived and Julian was correct to suspect that he was being, there was a plot to, uh, you know, entrap him into a U.S. extradition uh, dragnet and be ran to the United States. He was vindicated by the evidence that has come out since then. I mean, the, the evidence is overwhelming, including CIA eavesdropping at the Ecuadorian embassy, uh, eavesdropping on his legal team, threats to the family. I mean, unbelievable stuff. I mean, any judge should look at the preponderance of evidence in this case and say, <laughs> you know, the, the provenance of keeping him incarcerated being a, quote, bail-skipping charge. Um, this, can, this should have been stripped away four times over by now, and yet that little thin hook still stands today, and, and this is the reason why his uh, bail has been denied. I mean, it's, it's, to me, it's extraordinary uh, how you can build uh, such a castle on, on a very spurious uh, minor uh, charge that's actually been debunked uh, by now. Um, I mean, you, I mean that must be very, very difficult in itself to come to the realization that you're you're being held on thin air, basically, after all this time in full public view. I can't imagine how how difficult that is. But uh, you know, go ahead. Absolutely, yeah. And as the chap said in your footage just now, it's completely illogical. Um, I mean, it's just incredible, and it just shows the power of the state. I mean, they literally do what they like. And uh, no one can do a damn thing about it. Um, yep, all the Swedish charges are gone. We found out, I think one of the girls was a, a CIA asset or something, or a past CIA asset, if there's ever such a thing. And um, yeah, all of that's gone. It's, it should not be brought up in this case at all. And um, it just it makes me so angry because it's, uh, it's just stuck there for all this time again. It's absolutely bloody ridiculous. Um, yeah, they just do what they like, don't they? They they make the rules, they break the rules, and we have to bow down and follow on. And uh, th th there's another clip. Um, this was actually from, and this is an important clip, and maybe it's a, a segue to, I think, uh, a bigger, a wider conversation that I'm sure you have a lot of uh, thoughts and feelings on, which is the issue of of, of surveillance, of uh of t the, the information sphere going into the future, the role of technology and how it's transformed the intelligence services, that uh, how it's transformed the whole concept of surveillance, of privacy, all of these things. And I know these are issues that, uh, you know, that you have probably some 
you know, important insight on. But let's, this is, this is MIA, the recording artist, UK based recording artist outside of, uh, I believe this is the old Bailey on September 21st. Uh, we've got this footage here, courtesy of uh, Rupley News Agency, uh, RT's video uh, news agency. But we're going to play this clip. Listen closely to this and everybody listening. Uh, MIA brings up some fantastic points uh, that we'd like to uh, expand on after this. But uh, let's let's have a listen here. Right now we're at a time where the problems are just different. And even if you take into account you know, what this case is about, um, and the concept of what intelligence and the intelligence systems that have been set up in the world, even those things are changing, you know. And just having witnessed the court case on YouTube with the heads of every sort of cyber, you know, technological leaders uh, from Mark Zuckerberg or Tim Cook at Apple or Mr. Amazon, and then hearing this case within a month's space and, and the detailed it's scrutinized at and, and every sort of combing of every random tweet that was ever made, you know, and using Wayback Machines to go into every single detail in, in, in the scope that it's uh, combed through compared to how, you know, having Silicon Valley uh, hearing and how... how not much was really discussed in detail it, it kind of shows where we're at you know and who's really in control and what's happening so i just feel like in that sense i do have optimism that the world is changing so fast that you know hopefully everyone sort of draws the line that you know the suffering is 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 been enough and that we can all sort of move forward into a different phase where we actually have really real relevant um, issues on surveillance and how we're going to go into the future and how, how you know, that sort of relates to everybody in the world, uh, not just Americans. Uh, I think the, these conversations are really important and those need to be had. And I think Julian's uh, an important and an intelligent contribution to those kind of conversations. And there's no point you know, locking him up and throwing throwing away the key when we actually need to expand, you know, our knowledge on cyber, uh, the future of what, what cyber surveillance and security and these things are. Thank you yeah. very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, uh, Gary, that was, that was MIA. Uh, she's obviously a, a big supporter and a, a friend of of Julian Assange and and on WikiLeaks as well, uh, in a great you know a great artist in terms of her you know, addressing uh, major zeitgeist issues, uh, and and this is a big one. I mean, she brings up a really important point. Gary is we this is a conversation that we have to have going forward. It's a complex conversation, but the you know the the discourse you know who's leading the discourse is it. Do the people of the world or of America or of Britain, uh, do they have uh, input in this conversation? Or is this only going to be a top-down national security state, Silicon Valley dictated conversation? And I'm asking you, Gary, because I know that um, you know, you've been in the world of IT and technology most of your life. 
or you've been involved in it and you've seen it change since you were a kid, since you had your first uh, Raspberry computer. I don't know what you started with Texas Instruments, uh, Commodore 64 to what we have now. You've seen all the changes. What MIA is talking about, I think, is really important. And Julian is is a great intellect on this issue. And his voice needs to be, uh, his input is absolutely crucial on different levels on this. And, and so, and that, that's not happening. You know, what are your feelings on this generally as a topic, as a, as a conversation? Where is it heading? Is it heading in the right direction? Well, yeah, the short answer, as you said previously, it was um, your latter point, that uh, it is a top-down approach and it does only involve the state and the intelligence agencies and now the, you know, the massive social media companies. And uh, I liked MIA's point about the scrutiny of um, like Facebook, et cetera, uh, compared to the scrutiny of, of Julian. Um, you know, power protects its vassals, doesn't it? So um, they're, they're not going to mess around too much with someone so useful to them, such as Zuckerberg or whoever. And I think I'm right in saying that the CIA closed nine uh, data, intelligence databases due to the amount of information they got from social media, such as Facebook, which is kind of crazy. But um, yeah, this is going to get worse and worse, I think. Um, you've got people taking apart uh, Alexa home devices because they're, they're sure that she's listening all the time and hearing, oh, I'm calling her a she, sorry, it's a device, but it's listening all the time and um, you know, hearing stuff it shouldn't. Um, but yeah, I mean, my first computer was uh, an Atari and uh, yeah, things have got just crazy, crazily advanced since then. But um, one thing that's strange is the psychological effect of social media on people. I've even thought that perhaps, because the internet was originally invented, invented by DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, and it was, used to be called the ARPANET. Um, but uh, the state's plans are planned decades in advance um, you know, when it comes to large-scale fundamental sociological change. And um, if you see people, it's the addiction. It's this like feedback loop of social media. It's just incredibly addictive. And I think they knew that when they built the internet. And I think they planned to eventually build it up, build it up into social media because all, all the technology was there. You didn't have to invent incredibly new technology just to add Facebook onto what's already the internet. And um, I think they knew people would be addicted. And I think they knew people would all talk to each other, open up, share photos, and eventually share locations, and eventually um, let the government know practically everything about them without even being asked. It's almost... Uh, well, it is, it is surreal. It's very surreal. Yeah, what, what's interesting, I mean, you talked about the some of the genealogy of technology there. Uh, that's an important conversation. Uh, you know, you remember how the internet used to be, Gary, uh, in the days of news groups, uh, forums, uh, chat rooms, and things like this. It was kind of, there was an incredible independent blog publishing in the 90s like research archives and things like this. A lot of stuff that's been erased. There's been a degradation of the internet. There's a lot of really important information over the years that has disappeared uh, through because of, you know, uh, companies have bought other companies, servers have been wound down, uh, information's been deleted, or uh, URLs have been blocked or discontinued and so forth. Uh, but you still have that walled garden effect of internet 1.0. And when social media came in, that's the kind of the 2.0 uh, 
uh, application. And this was this was an interesting time uh, from 2007 onwards. Now, all of a sudden, uh, social media potentially could knock the walls down on the walled garden, whereby the conversation that you know two enthusiasts might have been having on uh, news groups before uh, that th that never bled into the mainstream conversation, all of a sudden, now you have the the, the lateral conversation is tremendous, and things are going viral like never before, and 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 that obviously door swings both ways for the establishment in terms of what you said the the addictiveness the propaganda that can go travel very well through this new uh lateral social media system so what do they do uh what happens when the independent media uses this same system very effectively the reaction uh in recent years gary has been systematic censorship deplatforming uh, look at the what YouTube has done in the last couple of months is with the U.S. elections, just unbelievable. Uh, but on so many other issues as well, COVID, uh, any any dissension uh, from the WHO party line, absolutely grounds for deplatforming on any of these uh, these social media companies that are based in the Bay Area in California, but have a global reach in terms of uh, mediating or controlling the conversation on so many different important topics. Uh, so, I mean, do, so, so what I'm, what I'm saying is, um, do you think that social media is too, is such a powerful tool, uh, that, that the, you know, human, uh, the human, uh, governance apparatus doesn't know how to, uh, ex coexist with it without it being regulated. Uh, because it does have transformative power. I mean, it has a tremendous amount of power from uh, from the establishment side in terms of propaganda, corporate marketing, and things like that. But it also has that untapped power from the people side. And I thought it was expressing that early on. But uh, in recent years, uh, less and less so uh, because of censorship. You know, that issue of information freedom seeing what you've seen over the years, how technology is, has evolved. Um, what are your thoughts on this in general? Yeah, as you said, um, when it used to be forums and news groups, I mean, I'm still on forums. Uh, they're generally like a, a special interest, like electronics or whatever. And uh, it was all text-based. You know, the first um, internet browser I used, uh, I think it was Lynx, uh, there were no images. And um, then eventually, when there were images, it took ages to download. I mean, try telling a teenager that today, internet without images. <laughs> and so, yeah, there was a lot of discussion. There was a lot of text. There was a lot of thought. There was a lot of intelligent interaction. And now a lot of things are just, you know, like videos and memes. You know, people don't even communicate properly anymore. They just stick a meme up rather than, you know, telling you their original thought. Um, and some are funny. You know, I'm not against them. But it's not exactly an informed opinion, is it? Just blasting someone with a meme. Um, and also, yeah, the speed of things, because you get used to very great speed with computers, you get used to your, your commands being executed quickly, you can communicate instantly, you can send large video files instantly, or stream large videos. Um, so it's kind of, uh, I think it is something that will be bad in the end. I mean, you say, yeah, it's definitely a double-edged sword, because it could be used for lots of good as well. But uh, it seems to be mostly for entertainment and for information gathering on us. 
So, so it's, it's, it's transforming from a, 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 a tool for the people and it's becoming a, in, in a way, kind of a trap uh, for the people as, you know, for intelligence gathering, basically. Um, so so yeah. who's going to parse through all this intelligence? Obviously, it's too much for humans. Uh, so going forward, I mean, this, the, you know, what do you think about the massive role of, of AI? I don't know how familiar you are with that, with that area of, of development, but, uh, you know, how, how much of this is going to be done by artificial intelligence or how much is being done right now? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I've, I've been programming AI since my early 20s. I've, I've, I've always been mad on it. And uh, I think people are far too scared of it because even with the best examples of like machine learning and deep learning we have now, which are just um, the old neural networks, but with many more layers, um, they're just very advanced pattern matching. So yeah, that's you're, you're bang on. That's exactly what would be used to trawl such a huge database of information. Um, and that is scary, but uh, I can never see a, a robot's take over the world scenario because you, you can never program sentience. You can make something appear very clever. Um, for instance, they used to think that if a computer could be taught to play chess, then that'd be some kind of intelligence. But we now know that it's not. It's just a, a very deep sort of look-ahead function. But yeah, you're right. It will take powerful artificial intelligence to trawl through all that information. And then you don't even have a, a human hand judging the matter. You have a, a machine deciding what's salient or what's negative or what's positive. I think, uh, and, you know, with regards to to WikiLeaks uh, and that type of a service, you know, anonymous Dropbox uh, for whistleblowers, uh, you know, a big, a big issue right now uh, for them is uh, if obviously Julian Assange is an important character uh, in that organization, you say he's the rainmaker, as it were, uh, for that organization, not, not just because of his expertise or his skills um, and, and being a kind of a figurehead for that brand, um, but also uh, the the fact that whistleblowers coming forward to to know that this is a, obviously back to the original conversation um, t- to know that your you know your sources are going to be protected um, and he's Julian has proven uh, right right the way through this scenario that he will go all the way to protect his sources uh, he's willing to pay the ultimate price his life and liberty. To protect his sources, but you know him out of the organization and under trial like this is uh, created a chilling effect. I would imagine uh, for a lot of whistleblowers uh, who would be afraid to leak things uh, in this day and age, you know, either out of fears of security, having their identity disclosed, uh, being persecuted, uh, and so forth. Um, so, you know, going forward, do you think? This, uh, you know, obviously the establishment, the U.S. establishment, the the Five Eyes, the security state, they want to make a big statement here. It's it's obvious that's what's happening. They want to make a massive statement and send a warning to any whistleblowers, especially within military, especially within government. These are the ones that they're most, as you said at the beginning of our discussion, um, that type of material, state secrets, is the thing that they're probably putting the highest value on in terms of, uh, you know, what, wh- where their priorities are for going after people. Um, you know, do you think that this the situation with WikiLeaks with, with Julian Assange is, is, is going to do tremendous damage to this idea of whistleblowing 
um, or do you think that the technology can overcome uh, over is always going to be able to overcome or find workarounds uh, in order to make whistleblowing work? Um, you know, I, I know it's not an easy conversation, uh, but what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, well, um, I mean, I can, I can, you can see it making whistleblowers more scared because they can, they can think, well, the government at any time could step in, uh, arrest the staff at whatever your, you know, your favorite whistleblowing um, nearest office is, and, um, and then everything's blown, everything's uncovered. And uh, you might say, well, we've got cryptography. So if, as long as everyone's submitted whistleblowing data was heavily encrypted, then um, that's fine. But obviously the, the NSA have um, cryptographic procedures that are 20, possibly even 30 years ahead of anything that's public. And they've also had a hand in every single open source cryptographic protocol, which uh, is very comfortable. But we also have quantum computing on the way. Um, which will obviously give a uh, far greater level of protection in that you will know if someone's tried to decrypt or tamper with your data. Um, but as with everything, it's, it's a, a double-edged sword. No doubt they'll have the quantum tools to decrypt data, especially data that was encrypted under old protocols. So yeah, you can see that it's, it's certainly not seeming like a very safe world for whistleblowers. Um, but I do think Julian will win. I just do. And um, obviously, if he does, then uh, that's going to give everyone a lot more confidence and hopefully he can continue revealing the truth to us all and people like him. Yeah, I, I, uh, I also hold out that same hope as well. Um, he is, you know, quite clearly, even according to our own laws and customs and constitutional law, he is absolutely in the right. He has that on his side. I do think that's still worth a lot. Uh, and also, I think the... In terms of support, I think that resonates with the public. That's definitely, it's it, what's extraordinary about this story, about this situation, as tragic as it is for him and uh, his family and for the press in general, um, it, it has resonated internationally. There's people, his support is people from Japan, uh, people from you know other countries, from Australia, from South America, from Bolivia, from Iran, from Saudi Arabia, he has support supporters from everywhere, uh, and so that tells us that this cuts across uh, national interests. This cuts across religious interest. This cuts across any tribal uh, affiliations within the global uh, community, and it, and it it cuts right to the heart of something I think that's really profound, and that's really uh, that's really human at the end of the day. And the irony is, you know, he, uh, Julian and WikiLeaks being ensconced in such a technological whirlwind, um, but yet they're, in a way, holding the line for uh, some, you know, for humanity, for a very human, uh, basic moral issue, which is being able to speak truth to power, uh, and that's quite profound. And I think um, I, I agree with you, Gary. I, I, that is that's where the real currency is. Uh, and, and if it's if that's if that's preserved, if that idea is able to be preserved and articulated, um, I think eventually it, it, it can win out despite mm. the odds. But it, it doesn't look particularly good right now at this at this moment in time. But, you know, a lot of times in history, you know, uh, David has not looked 
uh, like his odds were very great versus Goliath on so many other occasions throughout human history. And of course, that's been proven, uh, you know, not to be the case by the end of it. But um, yeah, so that's, that's an interesting conversation. Uh, and hopefully, you know, we can expand on that after uh, he wins his freedom, we hope, uh, at yeah. some point in the very near future. I'm sure that uh, we share yeah. those, uh, those hopes as well as do millions of people uh, around the world. Uh, so, you know, this is, this, this is beyond a press issue. It's beyond a privacy issue. It's beyond a technology issue. Uh, it's a really fundamental moral issue of liberty and freedom uh, for so many different people. But um, just uh, I want to we just have a couple minutes left, Gary. I want to give you the floor. Um, any any final thoughts on on this case, uh, on this issue, or anything else that uh, that we uh, we touched on today? Hmm. Well, um, yeah, what you said about his widespread support is is so very very true. Um, I don't think I've seen an individual with such worldwide support, you know, there wasn't like a major religious leader, <laughs> the, the Pope or whatever, uh, incredible support. I mean, obviously, um, you know, very right wing, warmongering American citizens probably won't uh, have any sympathy for him. But yeah, that worldwide support is indicative of love, isn't it? Because we're also used to being kicked in the teeth by the state. And then here comes this organization and with this individual individual at its head. Um, just sticking it to the man, basically, but in a really good way as well. You know, he was very careful never to endanger not only his sources, but any intelligence assets that were part of the, um, the stuff that he uncovered. And um, I think he will win, yeah. But um, it might take a bit longer than we thought. I thought it'd be out this week, well, after the, the Monday ruling. But uh, I, th I think it will be another victory uh, for truth in Julian's case. And I just hope I'm right. Right. Well, look, uh, I want to thank you uh, for joining us, uh, Gary McKinnon, uh, on this uh, episode of 21 Wire Live. I really appreciate your time uh, and you also your insights on this and all the other issues. But uh, again, thanks for joining us. Hopefully we'll be able to speak again with uh, better news on this subject, but maybe also about some of these really important issues that, that we covered today. Definitely. I'd love to. Well, I want to say thank you very much. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen. That is uh, Gary McKinnon um, on 21 Wire Live this week. And uh, we really appreciate everybody for tuning in. Uh, we will be uh, streaming this uh, out um, again uh, tomorrow. We'll, we'll run a, a premiere as well on YouTube. Uh, and we'll also have this available up at 21stCenturyWire.com uh, in its entirety. Uh, so we appreciate if you share this show. But more, more than anything, uh, we do need your help. Uh, to like or sh and, and subscribe uh, to our channel uh, on YouTube, 21st Century Wire TV, for this video. If you do like this uh, this program, we we hope that you'll uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel and help our channel grow. Uh, this is a new project, and this is really possible uh, because of our our listeners at the Sunday Wire, which we run live on Alternate Current Radio every Sunday at the same time, 5 p.m. UK time, 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and that's a live radio show and because of our listeners and our support there uh, we've been able to launch this project uh, but so many other different projects as well and we're running a winter fundraising drive right now 
There'll be some links uh, in the YouTube description later, but you can also uh, find out more about this at 21stCenturyWire.com. Uh, we definitely need your support. This is a people-powered independent media outlet, and we re really rely on our listeners uh, and our viewers as well, our readers, uh, to support the work that we do. And we really appreciate uh, the support that we've gotten so far uh, this winter. So thank you very much, everybody. Uh, who supported this program. Look, that's it for this week. Uh, we really thank you very much, everybody, for tuning in. And thank you to our guest, Gary McKinnon. Uh, it was a fantastic conversation. And this is a tremendous amount of points that we could expand on. Uh, we'll have to leave that for uh, another time, uh, unfortunately. But uh, it, was, it was great. So take care, everybody. And uh, hopefully we'll see you Sunday at 21stCenturyWire.com or Alternate Current Radio for the Sunday Wire radio show. Uh, so we'll look forward to uh, to seeing you then. All the best.